0: Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson.
1: Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non technical audiences. You can find out more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is John Rennie. He is a mechanical engineer who transitioned into running manufacturing businesses. He's now a leadership author, podcaster, and speaker. I'm really interested to learn more about how a mechanical engineer became a speaker and author. You don't hear that too often. And also how we got into manufacturing, and then also what his podcast is about. So let's get into it. Welcome to Teach the Geek interviews, John. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. So I mentioned in the intro that you're a mechanical engineer. Where did your interest in mechanical engineering come from?
0: Well, you know, it's sort of a means to an end. Um, I had a desire very young in my life to uh, join the Navy and actually go on to, uh, you know, to be an officer on nuclear submarines. And uh, it seems like a strange thing, but, uh, you know, some kids want to be a police officer or they want to be a, um, uh, you know, an astronaut or a fireman or whatever. I wanted to be on submarines. Uh, I had two fathers, uh, two grandfathers that served in World War II. One was in the Navy. And I guess maybe sort of listening to their stories and just imagining kind of a life of adventure. And I had read a lot about this, these submarine captains and crews in World War II. And uh, back then, you know, we had a Cold War going on and it was like the Soviets and, and the Americans and, and submarines played a key role in that. So I decided early on I wanted to be uh, a submarine officer. And uh, what I learned is that you had to be strong in math and science. You had to study eventually you have to study nuclear engineering. But you had to have a technical background, really, to to, to increase your likelihoods to get on the subs and, and get get to serve as an officer role. So I made the decision to uh, to go to school, uh, study engineering. Uh, uh, well, I had I first had to get the grades right in in high school. You know the math and science grades. But I got into a good engineering school. I went to Worcester Polytech and studied mechanical engineering, and uh, did good enough in, uh, uh, in in undergraduate school to. To get into the submarine uh, community, I went through a nuclear power school and eventually served for five years on the USS Tennessee as a junior officer on board uh, that boat. So, yeah, so for me, it was a means to an end.
1: Well, eventually, you you transitioned into manufacturing. You know, I did mention that in the in the intro. So, how'd you go from a submarine to manufacturing? Yeah, interesting. I, I got out of, uh, when I was getting out of the military,
0: I had two offers. One was Merck Pharmaceuticals selling drugs, which I don't know anything about. And the second one was being a design engineer for a large global company called ABB that did electrical products, uh, mostly for, for the power industry. And, um, like I said, I didn't know anything about drugs. So I said, well, let's just try this design engineering job. I have a degree in engineering. Um, and so I went to work for a large global company. I started out as an associate design engineer working on medium voltage switchgear and, um, and so I started there doing doing projects, doing some very very significant uh, design projects that um, got me a lot of visibility within the company. Eventually got uh, the role of quality manager. Then I became the engineering manager. And then they had an they had a plant that needed, uh, they needed a plant manager that had some experience in the the nuclear trades. Uh, we were making circuit breakers for nuclear power plants at that plant. And so with my background, I fit perfectly into that role. So at 32 years old, I was asked to lead my first manufacturing plant. So it was sort of, uh, I didn't intend on becoming getting into manufacturing. I started off in engineering like a lot of people, but I went into quality fairly quickly and then in back into engineering management. And then, just because of the skill set I had and the experience I had, I was the perfect fit for this uh, running this one manufacturing plant, and that's what happened. And from there on, I I ended up leading eight different manufacturing plants through my 22 year corporate career. And then I started my own business, which is a manufacturing business, uh, seven years ago. So I've been in manufacturing ever since I was 32, and I'm 55 now. So I've been doing it for a little bit now.
1: Wow, that's inc- that's incredible. You know, you know, John. Whenever I think of people who end up going into management, I think of the the skills that you need to acquire to be able to make that jump from individual contributor to manager of people. What were some of the skills that perhaps you were surprised that you had to acquire to be able to become an effective manager? Yeah, it was interesting, you know, when you
0: get your first manufacturing plant, I always thought like the guy in the corner office had to have all the answers. And so as an engineer, you you pride yourself in finding solutions, finding answers, solving problems, right, by yourself and maybe with a small team. But one of the things I realized quickly uh, is that I had a very large team, you know, large manufacturing facility with a lot of skilled people working that plant. And I learned that if I could tap into the, the collective wisdom of that team, that I would be a lot more effective as a leader than if I just tried to solve it on my own or with a small team of people. So I think one of the things I learned uh, early on, and I write about it in my books, that, that that leadership is a people business. It's about people. It's about engaging people. It's about treating them with respect. It's about uh, learning from them and taking their ideas uh, into consideration when you're trying to make decisions. So. That was sort of the big thing i learned uh early on is that i couldn't do it alone i needed a te- I needed the collective wisdom of the team around me and um you know the other thing is i would say probably i was a bit of an introvert in the in, in the early days and i think a lot of engineers find themselves you know so we're, we're sort of in our books we're in our in our in, in our you know computer programs we're we're in cad whatever we're doing these things and we can, we can get into the zone really easily. Well, leadership is is much more an extrovert's game. And so I found myself over time sort of transitioning from being more of an introvert to more of an extrovert. And that's just because in, in, in the leadership world, you've got to be a people person. you got to be around people all the time. And so I think I would say I was forced in the beginning. I was forcing myself to be an extrovert in the beginning. And over time, it sort of became my natural. Now I'm much more of an extrovert than I was. Uh, when I started in leadership.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned extroversion and introversion because, well, being a, a manager of people, you have to be, you have to be okay with talking to people. That's yeah. <laughs> like you said, you could be a, an individual contributor and you can focus on, you know, your your task or your your job within the company, not really paying attention to others. Although that will be kind of difficult too, at least even thinking about when I used to work as an engineer, we had to work in teams. So even though I was an mm-hmm. individual contributor, you still had to work with other people. So you could be as introverted as you want, but you got to talk to people at some point. But then it just gets magnified once you become a manager of people, because now these people are looking to you to, to manage them and, and help them figure out what their, I guess, they, even their goals within the company are, what their progression within the company are. You can't just be in your office. You know, off, off to yourself, and just you, you all go and, and do your jobs, and and not talk to the people after that. Then they're, they're not going to be all that happy. And then also the point you brought up about working, you know, help, using other people's knowledge to even help the help the the whole team even do better within whatever the goal of the of that team is. That's just that just seems to make perfect sense because you will then if you don't do that you'll end up with people who become disgruntled because they think they're just a, a pair of hands and their 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 views and their opinions don't matter much they just told what to do and then they just do it. They become disgruntled and then they leave the company and now you have to go hire new people. And that's just more work for you. And if you're an introvert now, now, now you've really got problems because now you got to deal with a new set of people as opposed to the old set of people. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, you're, you're entirely right. And I think probably I got, I, got, I was fortunate because I kind of grew up in a blue collar family. So I really related well to the folks on the manufacturing floor. I actually related to them better than the upper managers, you know, the upper managers, were driving a BMW and they had, you know, a, a button down shirt and, and I like to wear jeans and, you know, and a polo shirt to work. And I, and I, I definitely related more to the blue collar workers than I did the folks uh, in upper management. So I think that helped me build those relationships uh, with the people that that, that worked for me. And I think the fact that I was willing to get out of my office and listen to their ideas in a genuine way, not a fake way, like literally tell me, what do you think we should do differently? And then I would shut my mouth and listen. I think that those are some important skills when it comes to to leadership. Is to, you know, to, to to you know, shut your mouth and listen and let people talk, let them have a voice.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People want to feel like they're being heard, and not necessarily that you actually implement what they what you, they say, but at least they want to get the sense that you you listen to what they had to say. Because in in some cases, you know, you're you're getting information from a bunch of different people, and there might be conflicting information. And you yeah. have, and you as the managing as the manager has to figure out how to proceed. But at least if people felt like their they their opinion was heard, they they'll be a lot more. They won't be as disgruntled sitting in their cubicle. I'll say that. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, John. I, you're also a leadership speaker and author. How did you come to those things?
0: You know, I probably I would say about 10 years ago, I started writing um, articles because I realized that, you know, yes, I was a leader and, and I worked with a lot of leaders in corporate. But I noticed that my teams did a lot better than the other teams. Uh, my my factories always outperformed the other factories. And it wasn't me. I was nobody special. But what I realized that I was leading people similar to the way that I would lead when I was on the submarine. You know, in a submarine, you're in this enclosed space. You're there 24-7, seven days a week for three months at a time. You really build deep relationships with the people that you work with. And I naturally did that in my leadership roles in corporate. And so uh, about 10 years ago, I realized like, oh, wow, maybe maybe I am doing things different than other leaders. And maybe I should start writing about what those experiences I had in the military and how that helped me to be a good, uh, a good leader in the civilian world. And so I started writing articles on different... Um, Different websites. I started my own blog, uh, and eventually that led into writing my first book uh, three years ago, and um, which just was was really successful. Took off, got got a lot of attention, and I wrote two more books since that. And then uh, two year, a little over two years ago, I started a, a leadership podcast called Deep Leadership. Uh, but ba- basically, the reason I'm doing it is to share share what I've learned. I'm, I'm old. I'm older now. I'm in my fifties. I really want to share what I've learned and what has been effective for me uh throughout my career.
1: Has anyone ever been a guest on your podcast and said something that you that you disagreed with?
0: Yeah, I don't know about disagree with. We we certainly have some interesting guests on. I think the one thing that shocked me or surprised me probably more than anything is um I've had two Navy SEAL platoon commanders on my show. And uh, both of them said something, they both said the same thing. And basically they were, they were, you know, about a year apart. And they both said that the, the way that you build a strong, um, a, a tight connected successful team was that you had to care for each other and you had to love each other. And and two Navy SEALs, these are the hardcore Navy SEALs that, that basically kill people for a living, said that you have to love your brother. You have to have their back. You have to care deeply for them if you want to be a successful team. And it's funny because you don't hear that kind of talk in corporate. You don't hear the words care, love, respect, I got your back, right? Uh and so it's interesting that if we want to build really successful, high-performing teams, love is a part of it. And and that was something that was a little bit surprising to me hearing from these tough, you know, Navy seals.
1: When it comes that's an interesting point that those two guests made about having to love the people that that work under you or that report to you. So when you're interviewing somebody for a position in your team, are you thinking to yourself, can I love this person?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting point. I don't know that I think that, but but one thing I do want to see when I'm talking to somebody is I really want to see um, some evidence that you have some grit. And what I mean by grit is that you have passion and perseverance. You did something in your life that was hard to do. And I really try to surround myself with people that have that are gritty and have the ability to get things done and not slow down uh, when things get tough. And so when I'm talking to somebody, I'm not sort of, sort of thinking about that future relationship I'm about to have with them. I'm more thinking about, can you fit on a team where we're likely going to, you know, encounter obstacles, and and what, what's your experience in overcoming those obstacles? And so, I would say, great is the number one thing I look for when I'm hiring. Is is so I do hire a lot of veterans. I do hire a lot of people that got their degree while they were working full time in a factory. They worked, you know, they went got their degree at night, or uh, or came from you know a tool and die. Work started as a tool and die maker and became an engineer. I, I'm looking for those people that have have grit and perseverance and have,
1: have gone through some really hard things to get to where they're at. You know, John, whenever I hear about culture and and hiring people to fit uh, uh, hiring people into a culture, you, uh, at least I often hear about cultural fit. And mm. I heard about that for years. Although in the last maybe couple of years, I've heard that cultural fit is out and cultural mm. ad is in and they say the difference is is that with cultural fit you oftentimes will pick you'll you'll pick people who are similar to yourself be- mm, or, yeah, because because yeah. they because you fit within the culture of the company so you'll pick people that are like you be, assuming that they'll fit within the company too because you fit within the company as opposed to a cultural ad whereas perhaps they're not like you so you can't see them necessarily as fitting within the current culture but they bring something else to the to the culture that will benefit the culture what do you think about that that difference oh i love it i i, I haven't heard that specifically but i do believe that
0: that's the right way to go i mean in every time i've built a successful management team it's always been a mix of uh people that have been promoted from within the organization and people that have come from the outside and i like to keep that mixed you know almost 50-50 and the reason being is is you need the experience. You need people that have been there a long time and have seen, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Uh, that has that have the history, the legacy, the story, right? You need to have that. But you also need the fresh ideas from people that are maybe completely outside the industry or completely outside uh this normal way of thinking so that you don't get stuck doing the thing, the same things you've always done. So I've really tried hard to, to mix up teams with a lot of uh internal and, and external uh influences so that we don't have that group think and we don't uh all move in this in, in a familiar direction. And you know, it's interesting because I think. Fear is is one of the biggest problems why people don't hire people that are different than them or smarter than them because the the the, the manager fears that they might lose control or lose their job or might look like they don't really know what they're doing, and I think that great leaders are don't don't have that fear. They want to have people that are going to push back and question their ideas and challenge their 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 concepts, and so I think. It starts with the leader. The, to build a culture where you're, allow, you're allowing different influences to come in and diff, people with different backgrounds or different um, uh, educational backgrounds or experiences to come into that organization, you've got to have a leader that's open and willing and has a growth mindset, and willing to have people come in uh, with different ideas, and they don't, they're not they're not driven by fear. Unfortunately. I saw a lot of corporate managers driven by fear through my 22 years. So they would do everything just to protect their jobs, to get to the next level versus wanting to learn, grow and be better as an organization.
1: Yeah, I I certainly can see that. And I, I certainly can see the benefit of bringing in people so that they add to the culture. But you better learn to love them at some point. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that
0: because I, I really, I really believe this, and I and I think your listeners will know this too. Is I say this a lot is that people are messy, right? Uh, and and business is messy, and the world is messy. And I think the the more we can be tolerant towards the mess and appreciate for for everybody and what they bring to the table, even though it may not be the same as us, and it may not be exactly how we'd want them to act, but but that's okay. You know, like we have to enjoy the human. Human nature is really interesting. Every, every person is different. Every they come in with quirks. They come in with hangups. They have past histories. They have they have trauma. We have they have things that triggered them. And we have to sort of make them as leaders to kind of all align them and move them in a certain direction. It's hard to do, right? But I think that's what uh I get a lot of for me. I I get a lot of um. It feels good to me to 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 build a team and make it cohesive and, and accomplish something that's difficult. So it's a challenge like a it's like a Rubik's Cube with a side missing. It's hard, <laughs> you know, but you got to do it if you want to be successful.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And kudos to people like you who do want that that responsibility of of dealing with people's quirks. I, I know myself I, I never wanted that responsibility at all. That's which is why I never became or never even <laughs> wanted to become a manager because you're right. People do bring all their issues from home, sometimes to the office. And as the manager, you have to deal with them. But at least there are people people like you out there that are, are up to the challenge. God knows I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) it's not I mean yeah
0: you're right I think you have to go into it for the right reason if you go into leadership thinking I just want a promotion I want to make more money I want the corner office I want the company car you're doing it for the wrong reasons you have to love people you you have to want to uh make a difference and in in their lives and and, in in the and and in the success of the organization it's definitely a hard job and you know I but now that I've been in it for three decades I really enjoy it I really enjoy people I enjoy the process I, I don't get frustrated when I have to fire somebody or if that doesn't work out. I mean, it's just part of the process. It's, it, you know I want I, I, I want to help people uh, reach their full potential in our company and and, and and try to get the company to reach its full potential. it's it, it's always a it's always a challenge every day trying to get all these things aligned to to that purpose.
1: Yeah, I would think so. And if you do have to fire some people, keep some keep a box of tissues close by on your desk.
0: yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I've had it. I've had lots of I've had criers. I, I've had all sorts of situations, but it's just that's just the way everybody reacts differently to uh to you know, life events for sure.
1: Absolutely. You know, John, when I first started this podcast, it was to speak to people like yourself. People, or people like me really people that have these technical backgrounds who had to end up, end up giving presentations whether by force or or not by force For me, it was <laughs> it certainly was by force but but then they saw the benefit of getting better at it at what point did you see the you getting better as a presenter as a public speaker could be of benefit to you oh i i i really do believe that you know part part of leadership is influence
0: and influencing people who have to be able to speak to people and i think Early on, 32 years old, I I started having all-employee meetings every month with my my full factory. And so you'd imagine, you know, somebody who's been a little bit of an introvert's getting on stage that first time, and you see like 150 people out there, and you're like, okay, here we go, you know? And I think, um, so I would say in the beginning, I was, you know, nervous, but I knew it was important. But I I said, look, we're going to do it every month. And and it was just like um, practicing guitar, you know, the more I did it, the more it became easy to the point where, like I get excited about the monthly meetings because I have like, I've got some things I want to talk about and I want to get people excited. I, so it got to the point where I I derive energy from being in front of people and being able to talk, talk about ideas. But if we want to influence people towards an objective, we have to be able to communicate with them. And I think that's something that uh, all uh, people need to understand, it, but especially technical resources, because we have a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge that we can impart on people but but sometimes we're the ones that are sort of in the background and you know getting getting the job done doing the testing doing the design doing the stuff that's difficult and sometimes we're we're overlooked as engineers so i think i think more and more technical people can get out in front and be able to talk and communicate i think uh helps our cause uh, because to be honest um i don't know how many people want to be engineers anymore you know when i when i became an engineer that was like it was like a source of pride to to get that engineering degree. You're like one of the few people that did something really, really difficult in undergraduate uh school. I don't necessarily see that that, that you know, I'm I, I don't I see that desire as much anymore. You know, it's almost like um, you know, maybe doctors and lawyers are still like, you know, kind of a high, uh, high status, but I think um I don't know, maybe TikTok stars are a higher status than engineers <laughs> these days. I don't know. You know, it's just funny. I don't see people, young people wanting to be engineers anymore. I, I do teach at, um, I do teach leadership at grad, on a grad school level. So I teach at a number of different universities here in North Carolina. And when I come in, I don't see as many Americans. I see a lot of uh, people coming from overseas to study engineering uh, in the U.S. And I don't see a lot of Americans. Uh, I, the last class I taught was at NC State and um, it, there was no Americans in the class, which is sad, sad for me to see, because where, where are the young people wanting to become technical experts? Well, you So know. that's why we have to get out and speak so that we <laughs> so we get people to see that this this is a, this is an interesting profession. You've got to you've got to,
1: you know, and we have to represent better. So, well, you said it yourself, John, they're, they're making their tech talks. They're trying to be influencers. Two million yeah. likes. <laughs>
0: right, right. Exactly. That's so. where they are.
1: No doubt. So. When it comes to the presentations that you have to do, do you have a process for putting them together? If so, what is it? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So the the one thing I would say this is I have a story. I'm going to tell you a story from beginning to end. So I think that's really important because you get people to, to, to stay engaged with you as you tell a story. So for me, it's an arc. It's a story arc. So, I want to first of all, I want to know what, what, who am I speaking for? What's their main objectives? Right. And then what story can I tell through from my past that will help that, that audience? And so I'll develop a story and then I will select pictures for that story. So, at anything on my slide presentation, there will be very few, if in most cases, no words at all. I will just, I will just take them through a picture show and. Part of the reason is, is that uh, what I've learned over the years is the more words you put on a slide, I find that the listeners will quickly read the slide first. And then they're looking at you like, I've already, I already know what you're talking about. Well, you know, hurry up, dude. I already, I already heard. So when you put a lot of words on your slides or even any words on a slide, they're going to read that first and they're going to sort of ignore you or they're going to, th- their minds already past that. All right. I got that. What What's next? What's next? And so I think when you use pictures, you gave a, you get a little bit of a mystery, and I purposely t- pick like sort of interesting pictures that people go, "What is? Why is he putting that up there?" So there, so I get there, I get them engaged, and I keep them on on track as I tell my story and go through my progression of the stories. And I and I don't, you know, I don't let them off the hook until we get to the end of the story. So we keep them engaged throughout the entire entire time. And I also think to myself. Where, where are there points in this presentation where I want to reach out to them and make sure that I get, you know, I'll say to them, how many people in the room here have a technical degree, you know, so I want to get them engaged so they're not, you know, they're not on their phones or they're not on their computers or whatever so I, so I'll do certain things to, to get them to in, engaged, even when I do like a, um, a virtual presentation or virtual speak, I'll use the polls process to you know do a quick poll how many people think whatever or i'll say i ask a question and put the answer in the chat so i use i try to get them engaged as well so that it's not just me talking the entire time
1: i'm a big fan of what you just said there john and i think you're absolutely right when you have a lot of words on a slide it people are going to read the words and then not listen to you in a lot of cases and when you eliminate those words you now have eliminated that option. They either are going to listen or are going to ignore you, and hopefully it's it's the listen part. And then and also by leaving out leaving off those those the words, what it does it for the presenter it eliminates that crutch of reading the slides. God knows how yeah. many conferences I've been to, John, especially technical ones where they have a whole bunch of text on the slide and they read the slide. And man, if you were if you went to those kind of talks, sleepy. Well, you will fall asleep. It's 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 almost a guarantee. I mean, it's, it's you gotta go in there with coffee, Red Bull, something, or else it's it's gonna be a problem for you. But yeah, I, I fully agree with you about having a lot of more images than than text. That's a, that's a great point. When it comes well, you, to, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I do technical presenting with my company. I teach,
0: I, I train people in, in the products we make our current transformers used for metering applications. So think, think electric utilities, the meter on the side of your house. We design the current transformers for industrial metering, essentially. So I teach meter techs all over the country. So I travel around the country and I go to these schools and I teach, I do technical training. But just like you said, if I sat, and and I sit there in the audience sometimes and listen to the other people training and it is boring. It is because it's dry. It's technical. But you can make boring things fun. And that's what I try to do. I make I make it fun. I tease a little bit. I was like, okay, the reason we do this is because engineers make everything more difficult. That's the reason why this is. You know, I make jokes. I get people engaged. I ask them questions. So I think they want to be... I'm sorry. It's a little bit entertaining. You've got to provide some entertainment as well as education. And, and, uh, and I think you have to think about that. Think about the poor slob that just had a big fat barbecue lunch. And now they come back to training (laughs) and they're, they're just trying to stay awake. They've got a Mountain Dew next to them. And it's like, you're going to put them to sleep if you
1: don't, you know, engage them and have some fun with it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Especially about the high carb lunch. (laughs) <laughs> and then you got the, the yeah, box exactly. right beside you. That's even more carbs. It's like, you begging this man to sleep. You, you, you yeah. definitely, you, yeah, you absolutely have to try to keep things engaging. And what you what you, what you, you do sounds like it, it certainly works. You know, John, this has been great. Thank you so much for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you? Well, everything's on
0: my website. It's johnsrenny.com. You have links to my books, links to my podcast, lots of free uh, leadership content out there. So that's the best place to go.
1: Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek, and you can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, John. Thank you. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms on all of them also if you prefer to watch the episodes head on over to the youtube channel at youtube.teastgeek.com until next time